Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Devraga Personal Finance. And this is episode 62. In this episode, we're going to be discussing PSI. What is personal services income? Now, this is a very common question, particularly amongst medical professionals, but it's also very relevant for those that contract out their services, such as IT professionals, lawyers, engineers, and certain tradespeople as well. Basically, anyone who provides a service in exchange for a fee. Now, this topic has been suggested by Anonymous, so whoever, wherever you are, thank you for your support and recommendation of this channel. In this episode, we'll go into detail about personal services income. Now, just a bit of background about this channel and myself, just a heads up, I'm not a financial advisor or a lawyer or a financial player, um, uh, planner or accountant. So make sure you do your own research and seek professional advice. The aim here is to arm yourself with some knowledge before you enter into the meetings with such professionals. Um, And this is not meant to be an extensive uh, list of advice in terms of financial information either. So please do your own research. Uh, I'm also very keen for topic suggestions. So feel free to email, Facebook, join my Facebook page, which is Devraga Personal Finance Facebook page, uh, or contact me via CastBox, although I find the CastBox uh, mechanism of contact is quite uh, clunky. So, um, you know, don't forget to, uh, in addition to suggesting topics for me to discuss, uh, don't hesitate to teach me a thing or two as well. I'm really keen to learn from my listeners too. I know a lot of you Facebook message me and I learn a lot from your experience as well, so really appreciate it. And I'm very confident that all of you have something to contribute towards my knowledge as well. And it doesn't have to be about finances, it can be about anything. Um, so since the electric car episode went out, I've learned a lot about cars uh, and, and I'm by all means not a car buff or anything like that. So thank you very much for that. So the aim of this channel is to get financially educated. We do so much research about cars and laptops and tech products. Why not research about personal finances? After all, it's about our retirement. It's about our future. So it's extremely vital, I find, to pay attention to the financial information that's out there. And, you know, you may not use it every day, but when you do use it, um, I think it'll come in very, very handy because we all work very hard for our money. In my humble view, there are five basic steps which you need to do to get ahead in finances and be secure for retirement. Step one, I use the pay yourself first principle, that is save 20% of your after-tax income and pay it to yourself. Put it aside before you do anything else with your income. Step two, invest it. Again, invest it right from the top. Do not let it sit there in a savings account. Do not, you know... um, you know, give it time to be spent. Just invest it straight up on the same night that you get paid. Step three, reinvest the dividends from those investments. Never, ever cash out the dividends. Make sure the compounding returns work for you in the long run. Step four, 
invest in my view for the long term and that is at least 20 30 or 40 years time starting early and being very consistent this is absolutely critical in order for your investment to be successful and for you to have a secure and wealthy retirement in the future. And step five, my favorite, always aim to automate it. If you do things manually, you're giving yourself a chance to take that money and spend it away and squander it. If things are automated and if you're, you know, if you've got an, if you're listening in Australia and most, most banks nowadays, even overseas, they have automated features about BPAY and transferring money and investments. Just automate it. Uh, make it happen without you even having to think about it. I think you will be absolutely surprised how easy it is. And when you don't think about it, you don't have time to spend it, which means um, it, it's just growing in the background um, and the, the compounding dividends and the investment time frame being you know, 30, 40 years will just absolutely uh, be very, very fruitful by the time you retire. If you did this, you're more likely to, one, retire with more wealth than what you imagined that you might have had when you retired. Number two, money, it just gives you options. It doesn't bring you happiness. It's just a tool. You can use that tool to uh, enjoy your life, make your life better, but also make a big difference to the lives of people around you. So it's absolutely important that you realize that the aim of this channel is not to make you super rich or whatever because that's not going to make you happy. What makes you happy is that it gives you options with money and with that options you can help yourself, but more importantly help the people that you love around you. Now before we get on to the main topic of personal services income, I want to address one of the most fundamental questions in personal finance and investing, which I tackled way back in August 2018 in episode 12. Should you pay off your personal mortgage, which is your principal place of re residence, or should you invest the money? This is for Australian listeners because it's not really valid if you're a North American listener because you guys get to tax deduct your principal place of residence. In Australia, we are not allowed to do that. We can only tax deduct the expenses associated with your investment properties, okay? So the question is, should you pay off your personal mortgage, which is your principal place of residence, um, or should you just invest the money if you had a mortgage? Now, what would you do? The short answer is it depends on a number of factors, okay? So there's risk tolerance, uh, you know, can you sleep well at night factor? I know a couple of you have uh, recently contacted me stating that you are now officially debt-free when it comes to your personal home, which is fantastic. Being debt-free is such an amazing feeling, especially getting rid of the biggest debt in your life. So the fantastic and congratulations, you know who you are. Do you have dependents? How many? What age? What earning capacity do they have, if any? Uh, do you have a partner? What's their capacity to earn and how transferable are their skills? What is your age? Um, what is your other asset portfolio, your superannuation, your current investment properties, etc.? Your health, it's absolutely important, okay? So if you have someone of poor health, do you really want to take risks in investments outside of your mortgage? Don't you want to be secure and pay off your mortgage so that yourself and your family are safe? They don't get kicked out of the house that they grew up in. So your health is very important. So if you're listening to this, look after yourself, exercise, eat well as much as you possibly can. Um, that's not eat as much as you possibly can. Eat well as much as you possibly can. I uh, just thought I might clarify that. Um, your earning capacity. What is your earning capacity? What is your risk in your profession? So for example, if you're a skyscraper window cleaner, then whether you pay off your personal principle of residence versus investing, 
changes because that is a relatively at-risk profession. If you're a skydiving instructor, uh, instructor, yeah, you, this sort of changes your perception about you know paying off your mortgage versus uh, investing your money. Do you have any personal insurance plans, if any? Do you have any loan protection plans, if any? What is your marginal tax rates? And what sort of investments do you want to do? And what are their expected rates and speculation? Okay, so this is all number of factors that you need to take into account. But that's a cop-out. I think that's a cop-out for me to just say, look, the short answer is it, it depends. Well, there is a systematic approach that I think you can potentially use to answer this question. So let's answer this question in detail based on a systematic approach. Let's break down the factors that I've mentioned just before into five categories. Category one, what is your principal place of residence interest rate? Category two, what is your investment returns or expected returns? That is slight speculation. Um, so you might need to speculate and sort of predict what the investment return is going to be. Category three, what is your marginal tax rate? And I'll tell you why it's really important. Category four, what is your age? So again, if you're in your 50s listening to this, having a mortgage uh, for your principal place of residence, I'd be a bit nervous. Um, I feel if you're in your 40s, if you can knock off your mortgage and pay it off so you have significant security, especially with those kids growing up, I think it's much, much better. That's just my personal view. And what is your risk tolerance? And of course, this all comes down to how much risk can you or are you willing to take? Now, out of these... There are two big factors. So out of all of the factors that I talked about, you narrowed it down to five. And out of the five, I think there's two big factors that you need to take into account. Okay, um, that is the interest rates, which is hard to predict the movements of. Again, very speculative. Um, you know, we've had sudden interest rate decreases over multiple months in Australia in the last 12 to 24 months. So, you know, some people are saying it's going to go down even further. Other people are saying, no, it's going to go up in the future. It can only go up, etc. So it's very, very speculative. And what is going to be your investment yield or return, which is even harder to predict? Uh, who knows what the future holds in terms of your investments? Okay, that is the two biggest factors that you need to be talking about. But remember, we're talking about paying off your principal place of residence versus investing elsewhere, okay? This has nothing to do with whether you should pay off your consumer debts uh, as opposed to paying off your mortgage because let me tell you straight up, paying consumer debts is always going to prove fruitful when it when it comes to um, paying off uh, 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 paying off your mortgage, okay? So, or, pay, or, or basically investing in something else. It's completely foolish, in my opinion, if you have a credit card which has an interest rate of 18 to 25% these days, um, if you have that and you've got debts owing on that, um, to not pay that off and pay that 18 to 25% per annum interest on the credit card while you take that money and invest somewhere else with a return of about 9% even or 10%, that's just foolish, okay? So if you pay off your credit card with that level of interest rate, you are instantly gaining a return of 18 to 25%. That is the return, okay? That's never going to be taken away from you unless, of course, you use a credit card again, which I hope you I hope you don't. But essentially, when you have an interest rate of 25% on a credit card, you pay it off, that is a return on that investment, 25%. For every dollar that you pay off, you save 25 cents per year. Now, back to the real question, mortgage payment versus investing the money. Out of the two factors, interest rates and investment yields, the general principle is that the higher the interest rate on your mortgage, the better to put your money into the mortgage because 
the returns in your personal principal rate uh, place of residence in Australia is tax-free. That is, if you pay off a 4% mortgage, then your return, your real return, is going to be tax-free. And I've got a bit of a formula that you can use to calculate that. Okay, so the, that, that, that also then depends on your marginal tax rates. That is, your higher the marginal tax rate and higher the mortgage, return, uh, mortgage interest rate, then the more likely you are going to get an excellent real return if you pay off the mortgage as opposed to taking the money and putting it somewhere else and, you know, investing in an index fund, etc. Okay, so there, there are two things here. The higher the marginal tax rate, and the higher the interest rate in your principal price of residence mortgage, the better to pay off your mortgage due to the tax you will pay from other investments. Okay, so if you took that money and put it aside and invested in shares or whatever, and you get a return, remember the dividends, no matter how frank they are, you are going to have to pay some sort of a tax on them. And if you've got a high marginal tax rate, well, it just piles on the income, and therefore you're going to be paying significant tax on your investment yields. Okay. So what is the formula to calculate the real return of paying off your home as opposed to investing? Well, that is, the formula is this, okay? You might have to write it down. It's better done on a slideshow. But essentially, it's your mortgage rate divided by 1 minus your marginal tax rate, which is the real value of paying off your mortgage. Let's calculate it using an example. Supposing your marginal tax rate is 37.5% and your mortgage rate is 4% per annum. Therefore, you would need to achieve of 4 divided by 1 minus 0.375 because it's a percentage, which is roughly 6.4%. Okay, so 4 divided by 1 minus 0.375 is going to give you 6.4%. So if you pay off that mortgage with a marginal tax rate of 37.5%, then your real return is going to be 6.4%, not just the 4% that you're paying off in the, on the interest of the mortgage. But if your marginal tax rate was 47%, which a lot of people that are listening to this podcast channel are probably on that top marginal bracket, then this changes dramatically. The equation now becomes 1 divided by 1 minus 0.47 which then becomes 7.55%. So your 4% mortgage interest rate for your principal place of residence, if you pay that off, your real return after-tax return that you're getting is actually 7.55%. Now, that's pretty reasonable to expect, this return over the long term, if you took that money and invested it somewhere else. 7.55% is what, I mean, if you look at the average sort of ASX 200 return over the last 50 years, it's been about 9 to 10% on average. Okay, so if you paid off your mortgage um, and if you speculate that the ASX 200 in the next 50 years is going to return, you know, 9%, then 7.55% is still lower than 9 and therefore it makes sense for you to buy an ASX 200. Now, of course, you've got to take into fees and all that sort of stuff, okay? Um, but if your mortgage interest rate was just 5% rather than 4% and your marginal tax rate is still the same, which is... 47%. This even changes dramatically. Now the equation becomes 5 divided by 1 minus 0.47. So the real return on paying off your mortgage now becomes 9.43%. Now this is getting harder, harder to achieve elsewhere in the long run. So 
I hope this provides a structured way of assessing whether it's better to invest or pay off your mortgage, because this is a very, very common question that you need to consider. <coughs> In other words, you need to use this equation and guarantee yourself your return on investing in something other than paying off your mortgage is going to return you consistently the X amount. But it has to happen consistently without fail. So if you guarantee yourself that paying off your mortgage is going to consistently return better real returns in the long run, then yeah, pay off your mortgage. But if you can guarantee yourself that you're going to be taking that money, perhaps from the mortgage, and investing it somewhere else, and your real return on that investment that you're doing elsewhere is going to beat your mortgage return, real return, then yeah, take the money and invest it somewhere else. But it all depends again on your risk tolerance, your age, your earning capacity, etc., etc. I'm just giving you a bit of a structure from a mathematical point of view to approach this question, but it all comes down to your personal circumstances. So, for example, if you're 64, about to retire, and you've got, you know, still got a mortgage, which is a bit risky, I wouldn't be taking your money and Personally, anyway, compared to my personal situation and my risk profile, if I was 64, I wouldn't be taking that money and investing it in the ASX 200 because, you know, why would I do that? I'm going to pay off my mortgage and be mortgage-free and try and live a happy life and try and have a debt-free life. That's what I would like to do. Uh, but if I'm 25, then I've got 40 years of investment horizon ahead of me that's a decision that you need to make. Now to the main topic, what is personal services income? I've learned a lot from this research, actually. So it's a great topic. So thank you very much for Anonymous for providing that. Now, personal services income, or PSI, is basically income produced mainly from your personal skills or efforts as an individual. For example, if you have a website and you're selling products on it, which you imported from somewhere else, like Alibaba or something like that, well, that's not PSI. But if you're an IT professional and you contract your networking skills or website creating skills to various customers and you create websites, then this becomes PSI because you are using your personal skills or efforts to create those websites. Now, the reason why this particular rule, which I think, if I'm, don't quote me on it, I think this came about in the late 90s, was... Why this exists is to prevent people from creating trusts. Um, now, if you want to know more about a trust, I've talked about it in my previous episode, which is episode 61. Um, it just prevents people from creating trusts or companies, etc., in order to avoid tax or defer your taxes. Now, the ATO considers this system a form of tax equity to ensure you pay your fair share of taxes, even if you have an ABN, a company, or a trust structure, but then you end up uh, delivering personal services, okay? So this is a way so that people just can't randomly get out of paying tax or reducing their taxable income. So some common examples of personal services income would be financial professionals providing financial advice, um, IT consultants who contract out their services, uh, engineers who contract out their services via offering consultancy, construction workers who contract out their services, certain types of medical practitioners, so listen up, doctors who may have created a trust or company for exactly this purpose, you may not be able to. Now, obviously, I'm not an accountant, so check with your accountant to make sure you get a second opinion on that. 
or individuals who seem to be employees of an entity that you're operating, guess what? PSI rules apply to you as well. So first of all, you've got to talk about income classification. If 50% of the income you received for a contract was for your labor, for your skills or expertise, then this is potentially considered PSI, okay? So how can you then work out whether the PSI rules apply to you? Now, this is probably better done on a slideshow, but uh, you might get a little bit confused as I go through this process, and certainly I got confused when I, when I learned about it. Um, so you are at this step, if 50% or more of your income for your contract is derived from your labor, skills, or expertise, then you need to apply the rules here on in, okay? That means you've completed step one. That means you have 50% of the income coming from your personal services, your skills, etc., etc. So what is step two? Now, step two is, this is where you need to test the PSB rules, okay, personal services business rules, and if this qualifies as such, then the PSI rules don't apply anymore. So let's go through this PSB rules. So for the PSI results test, uh, number one, you've got to be paid to produce a specific result, okay, not at paid hourly, not submitting timesheets or get paid regardless of achieving specific results or objectives, services or outcomes reached. In other words, if you're a landscaper, you get paid to do the landscaping. If you just get paid by an hourly rate to do the landscaping, then that's PSI. But if you get paid to do the landscaping through your company to achieve a specific rule, then that may not be, okay? The outcomes and costs associated with the PSI are agreed prior to commencing the work, and the payment has to be made when contractual obligations are fully filled, okay? And being paid for an agreed number of items or services being provided. For example, you might get paid once you complete assembling 10 lounge sets. That's a specific agreed amount for a specific agreed work. The second thing is you're required to provide the equipment and tools yourself. So you supply plant and equipment to complete the job. For example, a demolition company may supply plant and equipment to demolish the home prior to commencing building works. So the type of work you're performing doesn't need plant or equipment, or if the client supplies only minor tools like screwdriver, etc. Okay, so you're required to provide the equipment and tools. And the third thing is you're required to have mistakes fixed at your own expense. So if you invoice for time spent to fix mistakes, you don't meet this requirement or this rule. So if it's a yes to all three of these for at least 75% of your PSI, that is 75% of the 50%, which is now considered PSI being tested, then you have deemed to pass the PSI results test and therefore the PSI rules don't apply to you. That means that's it. The PSI rules don't apply to you, okay? And if you don't meet all the three conditions, you proceed on to step three. Now, this step three is called the 80% rule. You need to work out how much of your PSI comes from any particular client, including any associates of that client, okay? If 80% or more of your PSI comes from one particular client or income source, then the PSI rules apply. But if you have a special consideration, you can ask for a private ruling on your specific situation with the ATO called applying for a personal services business determination. 
Okay, so rules are there, but rules can be bent. And rules can be challenged, and I think you can ask the ATO for a private ruling. I've never done it before, but sources tell me that you can do that. And I have heard that people have done it, and they've got their own little private set of rules because their specific circumstance doesn't meet the guidelines. So if less than 80% of your PSI comes from one particular client or income source, then you need to continue to step four. So what is step four? Step four is you need to pass any one of these tests coming up to make the PSI rules not apply to you. Okay, so what you're trying to do, with it's almost like a null hypothesis. You, you, you kind of assume that you're PSI and you're trying to prove at every step whether you qualify as a PSI or whether you want to refute that. Okay, there are three things that you need to do in step four to make sure that the PSI rules don't apply. Okay, and you need to pass any one of these three rules. One is the unrelated clients test, number one. Number two is the employment test. And number three is the business premises test. So what are these specific tests, okay? The unrelated clients test, basically to pass this test, your PSI must come from two or more clients who are not related or connected. And the work must be obtained by making offers to the public or sections of the public. Both of these conditions must be met. So, what does it mean when it says two or more unrelated clients? So, what does that mean? It means the clients can't be associated with you or each other. So, let me give you an example. Suppose you're an IT contractor and you're designing websites for company A and company B. But both of these companies are owned and controlled by a parent company. Well, that's a relationship, so you don't pass this test because the parent company is associated with company A, which is also associated with company B. Now, what does making offers to the public mean? It means you need to offer your service to the general public by way of example, example, competitive public tenders, placing ads in public places, industry journals, or even a business directory. Okay, so you need to meet both of these. That is, you need to make sure the clients are not related or associated with one another and you need to make your services available to the public by offering it to the public in whichever way you prefer. Most people just put ads on. So if you've got Jim's Numbing Company or whatever, then that, you might want to put ads in the public. Newspapers, for example, or classifieds. The second thing is called the employment test. Okay? And remember, you need to pass any one of these. You don't need to pass all three of them. Okay? The employment test to pass this test, your business must employ or contract others to help complete the work that generates your PSI. To achieve this, you must either meet one of the following conditions. Principal work must be performed by others or you must have apprentices. Okay. Uh, so what does principal work performed by others means? It means to meet this subtest, it means that 20% of the work performed must be completed by other employees or contractors you engage. Principal work just means central work to the main tasks that generate your PSI. Right about now, you're probably scratching your head in confusion like I was when I was reading this, but I certainly was. You know, it was just so confusing when I was learning about it. It is so specific, so it's always best to know this before approaching your accountant for more advice, okay? So here we are in, you know, step number four. Um, and... You can't count principal work performed by yourself, your own business, 
or other individuals in your business who also earn a PSI because then you've got to go back and apply the same rules and tests for them too. So then what about admin work? What about bookkeeping? What about billing? Can that be counted as principal work? No. I actually checked this with the ATO. It's clearly marked in their website. You can't count admin work as part of your principal work. So if you do landscaping and you've got a bookkeeper at home or at work or whatever who does your finances for the landscaping, who does the accounting and receipts or whatever, that can't be counted as part of the principal work of providing the service of landscaping. You can't claim bookkeeping as part of your principal work. Now, what does apprentices mean? Apprentices means you must employ one or more apprentice for at least six months of the income year. An apprentice is defined as someone who's learning a trade or a business or skill. For example, if you have a research assistant, they are not apprentices, so you don't meet that rule. And the total period of work must be for six months, not continuously. It can be non-continuous work. Um, it can be broken down into smaller time frames, okay? So that is principal work, and that is called the employment test. The third subtest here is business premises test. So you've got to meet either of these, remember, not all of them. If your PSI is then generated by business premise, you can apply the following rules to see if your income doesn't qualify as PSI. Remember, you're trying to disprove whether your income doesn't qualify as PSI. Number one, used mainly for personal services work, that is 50% of your income must be generated from the use of your business premise. Number two, used exclusively by you. So supposing you must own or lease the premises, you can't be co-owner or co-leaser because you don't meet the exclusivity nature of this clause. I butchered that pronunciation, I apologise. Number three, physically has to be separate. Your business premise has to be physically separate from any premises you use for private purposes. For example, in your home, you've got to have a distinct appearance uh, of the business premise. There's got to be access to premises which is separate, and there can't be any internal access. Number four, you've got to have a physically separate from your client's premises. In other words, that also has to have distinct appearances. Access to premises must be separate and no internal access. So you can't be within a client's premise and then say, oh, that's my business premise. You can't do that. So that's about it for this episode on PSI. Hopefully, I haven't confused all of you. It took me a while to understand all of this. I still kind of don't understand it without actually having to refer back to the ATO's website. But if you go through the ATO, there's a list of steps that you can actually do to see if your income is classified as PSI. If you also watch a lot of YouTube videos on this matter, you'll notice there's a lot of algorithmic flowcharts that might help you in terms of determining whether your current income is personal services income. So let's summarize the PSI rules in short. PSI is considered if 50% of your income comes from labor, skills, or expertise. Then, as we discussed, you apply the steps two to four, and each of those steps has subtests in it, as discussed before. At any step, if you feel you have a very special circumstance, you can apply to the ATO and ask for a private ruling. Now, it's an extremely controversial subject, particularly among medical professionals um, and who are mostly self-employed and provide contracting services to various you know, rooms or clinics or private hospitals or medical practices, etc. 
The big question I'll leave you with is, is your income, if you're a medical practitioner, considered PSI? If you work in one place or two places, or is it considered company income? And have you incorporated your practice um, to try and legitimize a tax minimization strategy? Um, Now, that is an extremely controversial (laughs) note, which I'm going to end at. I'll let you people decide amongst yourself, but ask your accountant. I mean, your accountant should be telling you all this. Um, Many people have different opinions. Many accountants have different opinions. So if you're unsure, ask for a private ruling. Once again, thank you very much for the support of this channel. Financial knowledge is extremely important. And remember, the other big topic we talked about here is whether you should pay off your mortgage of principal place of residence uh, versus actually taking that money and investing. And hopefully I've given you some systematic approaches to consider because it's a very common question I get and I'm sure it's a very common question that you'll be asking yourself if you're in the fortunate position of having some disposable income and having a mortgage and wanting to invest. Until next time, learn about PSI, arm yourself with financial knowledge so you can at least talk to your accountant and financial professionals at a slightly higher level. This is Devraga Personal Finance, episode 62. Until next time, stay safe. And of course, keep those topics requests coming. It makes me learn as well. Ciao.